podcaster. I hardly know her. <laughs> oh, hi. My name is Megan. I'm a busy mom of four young kids, a comedian, an improv trainer, and an award-winning author. This podcast is essentially the vessel I use to verbally process all types of topics and experiences. I love sharing stories, ideas, and considering new alternatives to things I have yet to learn and apply to my own life. All of this in effort to help create happier, healthier human connections through humor. Welcome to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. National Adoption Month continues, and this episode's guest is Sally Geyer, MSW. She is the Clinical Social Work Director at a New Beginning Adoption Agency. Sally has a master's degree in social work from Portland State University and a bachelor's degree in psychology from Western Oregon University. Sally has spent her professional life dedicated to helping families and children, especially children with trauma backgrounds. Many of A New Beginning's families have already had the privilege of working with Sally as she's facilitated the Foster Adopt and International Program training for almost four years. Her work and experience shows her passion for family and children and an understanding of the brain, child development, impact of trauma, and the importance of education and training for the most positive outcomes. Sally is a social services competency-based master trainer holds a basic civil and domestic mediation certification, an adjunct professor at Portland Community College in the Child and Family Services Department, and owns a consulting firm that provides top-level organization systems consulting, as well as training in attachment, trauma-informed care, child development, parenting, foster parent preparation, and adoption. She's been a keynote speaker and a frequent presenter at child welfare and social work conferences nationwide and has led successful teams in previous positions as the program development specialist for Oregon's health and welfare department, the program manager at Morris Family Services, and the director of a family of family and child services at Boys and Girls Aid of Oregon. There's a lot of uh, long words and titles in there and Sally is very modest about those credentials and that's kind of where this episode kicks off is like all the fancy titles to give that credibility and yet uh, she will divulge to us where she truly feels the credibility for what she gets to do in her line of work truly lies and we talk in this episode about loss and grief in adoption Um, and it, adoption is a beautiful thing and it can provide a different life for children that, um, and creating families in a different way. Um, and while that is true, it's important to recognize and understand that adoption starts in the space of loss in those different fields as a birth mother, they grieve the loss of their baby and what could have been, or maybe, um, even while they're pregnant, some of the things that are going on during that time frame, things that they don't get to do or miss out on in some ways um, while they're going through that pro- um, unplanned pregnancy. For adoptive parents, grief could be the loss of even being able to be pregnant, or they maybe have already experienced failed IVF journeys, um, or just grieving the loss that the birth mother is also feeling. There's a lot of those heavy feelings that are felt by both parties. For the adoptees, it's an understanding of their beginning. What happened? Where did they come from? What is their identity? There's a loss 
of a piece of their biology and certain relationships depending on how the adoption has unfolded. All of these different things are natural and normal. It doesn't mean that the adoptive family or the birth family or the adoptee has done anything wrong or that they regret any of the choices made. Grief and loss and working through it in a healthy way uh, is possible um, as long as people are willing to acknowledge it and take those steps to work through it. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was really um, enjoyable for me to listen to and to consider some of the things that I've gone through in my own adoption journey. So thank you for tuning in. And here we go with Sally. Clinically, my street cred comes from the kids first and then the families that I've worked with. The vast majority of my career is working with kids who come from hard places. And a lot of those are kids in the 80s and 90s who were in adoptive placements, either infant or out of the foster care system or even internationally, and their parents were ill-prepared to meet the lifelong needs and didn't understand why their kids weren't grateful that they'd been rescued. And it's that whole piece of, um, I got all of those degrees and all of those accolades so that I could legitimize the stories that the kids told me and so that people would listen to me as though I was some kind of an authority. But any and all, from my perspective of my authority, rests in the lived experiences of the children and families that I have worked with throughout my 30 plus year career. That is so good and so interesting that it's like, oh, you already know these things. You already know the meat of what you're doing. And that having that is like, see, I can prove it. That is really so true of a vast majority, probably, of credentials that exist in in the world around us. Um, They're fascinating, nevertheless. But I I would love to just jump right into where, like, what, I guess, what ultimately drew you into this career? I kind of want to start there. And then this episode, we're really going to dive into, like, loss, understanding what that means, that we're, adoption comes from loss in a big way on multiple sides. So we're going to unpack that, hopefully, uh, quite a bit here. But let's, let's warm it up with, like, where, where did your heart guide you? And how did you, how did you get on this path initially? Uh, That's a really good question. And I think if you asked anybody who has known me for my whole life, they'd be like, yeah, she was pretty much born a social worker. I was the kid who would notice in preschool and grammar school if there were inequities and would point them out, um, much to the frustration of any number of my grade school teachers. There's a story of me in fifth grade where I had a rather mm, strength space, Sally, stay strength space, frustrated and perhaps burned out fifth grade teacher. And she was very clearly discriminatory against certain members of my class. Now, I, I grew up in a small rural town in Oregon. So it wasn't like there was a lot of diversity. So it was more diversity around socioeconomic than anything else. Mm-hmm. And that annoyed me because I also grew up in a faith-based tradition and I kind of believed that whole red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight thing. And I also kind of believed that all men are created equal. It was like people had taught me that. I thought I should believe it. 
So um, she also really needed a lot of smoke breaks. And so she would frequently leave myself and another kid in charge of class during math class because she didn't really like math and we knew math. So she would literally leave us alone for an hour. So during one of those hours when, you know, we had caught the whole class up, we wrote a constitution Mm -hmm. um, and ran the class for about six months until she broke one of the rules and we held her after school because she had broken one of the rules. Oh, well. But we, like, we were running elections. We were doing all of this. And um, so the principal was kind of like, oh, dear Lord, what have we started? And so it's like, literally, I don't know that I could have not been a social worker. Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to be a teacher, but it was when I was doing my student teaching and I ran into another one of those teachers who were a little burned out and a little bit of a crispy critter and happened to be the men's basketball coach. So it didn't matter how poorly or how well he taught. He had a winning basketball team, so he was just going to be able to continue. And he kept throwing away the most interesting kids in the back of the room. And those were the kids who, you know, were all gothy and snarky. And I'm like, those are the ones whose opinions I want to hear. So that's kind of how I ended up accidentally on purpose becoming a social worker was it was like, stop disenfranchising people. Listen to what people have to say because they're way more interesting than the establishment. So I would say it's a calling, but also just kind of a personality type and kind of where I fell in my family birth order. I'm the youngest in my family. On my mom's side of the family, I have 21 first cousins. I'm 19th of the first cousins. So it's been a lot of my time just observing and going, well, that didn't work out well. You know what you could do differently. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. You know, I don't think I've ever thought about it from that. that I've heard of a lot of things as I'm the youngest of six in a blended home and, you know, have my own variety of various things. But I remember feeling like I patterned the way I tried things based off of what I saw. Ah, I don't because I would see both sides with the sister slamming the door and the parents grunting and mumbling afterward and whatever. And I'm absolutely, like, oh. and that's fascinating and awesome that you recognize those things. Sounds like when you were really young, observing yeah. the different yeah. students, observing the teachers and, and kind of like, even though you probably didn't think, Oh, well, they're, they're an all-star. You were recognizing that there was something going on, yeah. you know, and oof. Oh, I love it. So you just knew it was your passion to see the things and the calling, like you said, to start bridging the gap and understand why this is happening. What, so we know that adoption comes from loss. I don't know how many people outside of the adoption community may actually think about what that means. Certainly within the adoption community, we each know what our individual loss was, mine as a birth mom. There was a loss for me when I placed my child into the care of another family. And only in recent years have I really gotten an opportunity to listen and hear what the loss was like for them in my own triad. Um, So talk to us about loss. It's a big thing. There's a lot of grief involved and so many feelings that can be probably overwhelming and confusing. I really appreciate right off the bat the thing I don't <laughs> talk for a living. Um, I appreciate right at the beginning that I can, that you are referring to it as loss because of grief. 
if you read anything in pop culture, it's like grief and loss, grief and loss. And I'm like, why is loss getting second billing? If there wasn't a loss, there would be no need to grieve. And so we talk about, oh, it's a grief thing, but we never want to talk about the loss because societally, we're not great at having the hard conversations. And one of those hard conversations is talking about, ouch, that hurt. And loss means we wanted something and we don't get it anymore. So that means there's usually pain, big pain, little pain. And as a society, we just, we don't acculturate anybody to get comfortable talking about what it feels like to lose things. In training, I talk a lot about maturational losses and situational losses. And maturational losses is defined as the things that we all anticipate going through in our life. So an example of that is we're all born and we have a loss associated with that, the safety of the womb, but there's an immediate gain. We get to grow, we get to develop. Um, when we start walking, there's the loss of being carried around like the pretty, pretty prince or princess that we are, but we get independence. We get to pick where we're going. We get to run away from people and laugh hysterically. And so there's just in how we develop, every time there's a loss, we can almost always go, but here's what I got out of that. The problem comes in when we have these situational losses, which are those things that we don't anticipate going through. And because maturational losses tell us, look for the game, look for the game. What did you get out of this? Then we try to apply that to the situational losses to make it okay. And we should probably stop doing that as a society because then the losses that we feel, if we could talk about them in the moment, if we could grieve them as they're happening, that's a much healthier way for us to address that immediately. So when we start talking about adoption and, you know, we need to talk about the different kinds of adoption. There's infant adoption, which I think when people say adoption, that's the one that they think of the most is domestic infant adoption. But there's also international adoption, there's step-parent adoption, and there's adoption from children who are living in the foster care system. All of them have their own journey around grief or around loss that needs to be grieved. And there, there are subtle differences, but they all have to be acknowledged. It's not like, oh, it's less of a loss if you're adopted at birth than it is if you grew up with your birth family for a while, or you grew up in an orphanage for a while, or you grew up with a biological parent and now a step parent is adopting you. Losses, 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 loss. And we can't, and this is the other thing that we do in society is like, oh, on a scale of one to 10, that's only a two. So you get to grieve this much, but I've assessed that that loss is a six. So you get to grieve this much. Mm. And we need to stop doing that. Because the person who experiences the loss, they're the ones who get to decide how much they need to grieve and how they need to grieve and what it is that they need to be able to move through that pain. Yeah. I also th think that our language is really disrespectful because we tell people like, so when are you going to get over it? What? <laughs> what do you mean? When am I going to get over it? Um, I lost something that was really important to me. 
even if it was my choice, either directly or indirectly, yeah, I'm not going to get over it. I'm going to find a coping strategy around it, but it's, it's not like it's going to get smaller. It's more that my life is going to get bigger around it. And that just becomes part of my story. And I think when we don't allow people to have loss as part of their narrative, that's when people get stuck and that's when it gets toxic. Mm. Totally. Oh my gosh. I wish this was something I would have known 22 years ago when I went through it. Because I, I often found myself not talking about things, even though I was feeling the sad feeling still, because I was afraid people would think, I regretted my decision or that I couldn't get over it or blah, 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 that I'm stuck in the past, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which really ended up making it so that I have trauma to deal with years later when I finally like open my heart. I want the healing, but only, only as an adult that I realize, you know, and, and a lot from working around the adoption advocacy and being part of what's going on in the beginning, at least peripherally, like hearing how, how we have to address these things in order to move forward and to be healthy and that having all the feelings is healthy. You can be sad and hurt and angry and grieving. And, and that actually helps me to be a healthier person because I'm not just stuffing it until I explode. Right. Right. And that's, you know, people say those things like it'll get better. Um, give it a year, give it six months, you'll feel better. They say that not intending to make you stuff your emotions. It's that they're uncomfortable with the big feelings, either your big feelings, or they're like, this is bringing up my own unresolved loss issues. And I'm going to have feelings and uh, I don't want to have feelings. And so if they can help you push your big feelings down, then they can push their big feelings down and whew, we never have to get through and acknowledge loss and do that hard grief work. So when you are working with clients, families, kids, however you refer them, to, yeah. you refer to them, what state are they primarily coming to you? Is this in a space where you actually have the tools to give them to be preventative and how they handle it? Or is it people that have already, or maybe the whole gamut, maybe it's people that have already been stuck in the cycles of grief for a long time? Like, what is it like uh, to kind of get people engaged in this at whatever point they're at? That's a really good question. And I would say people come at all levels. They just may not be aware of it. When, when um, I especially think like, when we start with, let's just break down all members of the triads. So let's start with the adoptive family. And the adoptive family generally comes to adoption for a few reasons. Infertility, they feel called to it, um, or they're a little bit older in life. And the idea of having a biological child doesn't really fit in with them. And the idea of adopting an older child does work for them. And so they're coming at it from a oh and then let's not forget the folks in the infant program who come to adoption believing the myth that if i pay fees to an adoption program i'm magically going to get pregnant because that's one of those myths that is out there and that's a whole nother level of loss 
and of an unrealistic expectation, because I think a lot of loss, especially in adoption, is based around an unrealistic expectation. And statistically, less than 10% of families who start the adoption process end up having a pregnancy. And I always refer to them as spontaneous pregnancies because I don't count the folks who are still involved in fertility treatments and IVF, et cetera. These are the folks who they've been told you will never be able to get pregnant. And the biggest myth out there is just start the adoption process because I know this one person 20 years ago down the street, neighbors, cousins, brothers, 27 times removed who got pregnant. So obviously that's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. So there are folks who walk into the adoption process with the expectation that if they shift their focus to adoption, then magically they're going to experience a pregnancy and carry to term. And again, less than 10% of the time that happens. So folks are walking in with adoption generally being plan B. So that kind of is like, thanks. I'm your second choice if I'm your adopted child. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that that's how they walk through the door, it behooves whatever agency is providing training and support to bust that myth and call it out for them. And those are the folks who are like, no, I have no loss around this. I'm resolved. This is just my lot in life. And I'm like, oh, yeah, resolved people have not. That's, that's a trigger word for me. I'm like, oh, you have some work to do. Um, you know, social workers, we notice patterns. So in that, we just start telling stories and we start kind of breaking it down for folks and we make it very tangible so that they can start to look at their own life. So I literally do an exercise in training around that maturational and situational losses where we go through all of those things. And when I do, um, the infant training, which I don't do for A and B, but I have done for other agencies. The very last thing on those situational losses is, okay, so let's talk about infertility. What's the loss there? And I don't move on to what's the gain because folks just want to get to the gain. And I'm like, until you acknowledge and move through all of this, that's too much pressure to put on a child that they're going to resolve all of this loss for you without you doing your grief work. So A and B, other agencies are getting better at just calling it out from the beginning. So from application, from any of the supplemental materials that we're having people read, we're inviting people to take this journey. Sadly, I can't force them to do their work. really like to, but you know, it's against the NASW code of ethics for social workers, like client right to Mm self-determination. They have to choose their own path, whatever. Um, (laughs) How do people react? I know, I knew you were, I don't want to derail you while you're going. How do people react when they're called out on that? I'm sure it's very worded, but what is the response? Like, is it usually like an offensive some are, some are super offended. I think one of my favorite, this was not an A and B client. It was in another state. Let me just be clear. I'd like to say Idaho families respond better. They don't, but I'm just going to say that because we're in, you know, 
supporting Idaho right now. Um, but I had a family who, after we went through all of this, you know, the whole piece of what adoptive families go through, um, what the child goes through, and then talking about first families and what first families go through, and not just the birth parents, but also the extended family, because you have to acknowledge that there is some corporate grief that is happening within first families. Mm -hmm. And I had a family who was like, oh, and then I'm very, very clear in training and say, let me be specific. You need to do your loss and grief work on your own time. That is not my job to help you through. I will give you a list of therapists, et cetera. But as an adoption professional, I am more concerned about the lost journey for the children and first families. That's who I'm going to focus on. So I am going to be making decisions in cases that are specific of what's in the best interest of the child, what is in the best interest of the first family. And I had a family even after, so it was the last day of a three-day training. And they said, you know, I really don't think you're taking what adoptive families go through seriously. It's like really hard for us. Mm -hmm. To which I was the director of that program and said, hmm, you're on hold for six months until you go to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Because mm. I don't play. These yeah. are, I mean, those were the the promises that I made to the kids that I worked with in residential treatment who came from really hard situations who had both first families and adoptive families say the most horrific things to them. Like I should have aborted you, or I should mm. have never adopted you. I should have let you stay in the foster care system because you don't deserve a family like ours. Oh, man. Yeah. And so when you know kids have been told that, I'm like, mm, if I can prevent mm -hmm. those kinds of statements being said to one person, then I've done good work on this planet. And it's not okay for adults to not work through their own loss and impose those unrealistic expectations on children and let their pain from their unresolved loss come out as mean words. Mm. So I take this very, very seriously. Mm. And we spend a lot of time talking about, so that's a loss issue. What are you doing to grieve it? Mm -hmm. So, and for sure, my practice has gotten better over the years as I've done more of my own personal loss work and have been able to get more comfortable in standing in my loss work so that I can recognize in other people, mm -hmm. oh, that's coming from a point of loss. Mm -hmm. Another one of my mantras is just because you can explain bad or maladaptive behavior doesn't mean we excuse it. Mm -hmm. But if I can explain it, then I can have a conversation with you and say, wow, it looks like you're coming from a place of pain. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. That sounds like you're really angry and anger usually comes from a place of hurt. Mm -hmm. What happened to you? Mm -hmm. This is the best choice for you to take. Yeah. So if we start there in training with the adoptive family, 
then anytime I'm meeting with adoptive families, wherever they are in their process, the waiting process, which the loss of, of you start imagining this is the child that's coming into my family and then nope, that's not your kid. But mm -hmm. those are little things that still need to be grieved. Those mm -hmm. expectations of what that's going to look like still need to be talked about mm -hmm. so that then you can commit your heart to the next opportunity that presents itself. We're, we're very explicit in those conversations. But once the kids come home, then we ask those questions again. So what were your expectations of what that first week was going to be like? Mm -hmm. How many of those got met? Okay, so what are you doing about that? And we continue those conversations. When families get into crisis and they're like, we're fine, everything's great. It's we're in our honeymoon period. And then, you know, you're three months down the line and those little things that kids do and those little things that bother you about living with a new human being in your family mm -hmm. get bigger, then we bring it back like, wow, so that behavior is coming from a, a situation of loss. So what do you think it is that your kid is grieving right now that's leading to that behavior? Let's go back and look at their trauma history. Why would Halloween be a really difficult time for them? Let's think about what's life like um, in foster care when um, Halloween rolls around. Like, do you get to pick your own costume or do you get the leftovers? Do you even know what Halloween is if you're internationally adopted and now there's all of these people dressed and all of these scary things and going around and asking strangers for candy. I mean, that's really kind of a weird tradition that we do. I can't imagine being a newly internationally adopted person who's just learning English and it's Halloween. What? Like, that's such a weird tradition if you didn't grow up with it. Mm -hmm. But then even when you have infants who as they're growing and are learning more of their story about having tummy mommies and heart mommies and tummy families and some days they're going to miss their first family and if a family isn't ready to have that conversation with them and say well let's draw her a picture or if they have openness well let's see if we can go meet up with your first family. Let's see if your tummy mommy is available or your tummy daddy wants to get together this weekend or wants to come to your play. But mm -hmm. even when there isn't openness, that idea of that open heartedness for the child, so that as those moments of loss come up, like, oh, I'm not getting to grow up with my biological siblings. And rather than going, yes, but look at all of these adopted siblings, you have to be like, oh, that sounds really hard. Right. If you were with your siblings, what would you want to say to them right now? Okay, let's write them a letter. Okay, let's make them a video. And having a special place for them to hold that so that when reunion happens, they have that information and they don't feel like I have to fill in all of the places. It's like, here's the box of letters. Here's some videos that I made you. It also can help fill in those awkward moments during reunion of where you're like, okay, yeah, so we're related, but we've never met. This is weird. Um, and it just gives people the opportunity to make it an ongoing conversation. Yeah, that's so good. Um, 
what are some examples of like what success looks like when people do have the awareness of like, okay, this is, this is hard. Like describe to us what success can look like in process and going through this process. I think success, it's so individual for each family and for each member of the triad. And I think if I were to give one definition, it would be that people are allowed to feel their feelings in the way that they need and then the timing that is appropriate for them to feel those feelings. Mm. We talk with youth, whether they're the itty bitties or the teenagers, we talk a lot about big feelings. Oh, those are some big feelings. Mm. And just labeling it as a big feeling. By the way, all of the parents at some point used to be kids. So the same stuff that works with kids works with adults Mm -hmm. um, because it's honestly usually something unresolved from childhood that we've forgotten because we've been acculturated to tamp it down so much Mm -hmm. of like that first time we had an unmet expectation and we didn't get to talk it through. Well, we carry those residuals with us until we actually allow ourselves to work it through. Mm -hmm. So we talk a lot about big feelings. And so when you're able to acknowledge your big feelings, then that looks great. I think, I think some of the big story, like if I were to give you a story of a success in international adoption, it's the kiddo who is able to stay connected in with their culture. They don't dismiss the culture that they came from and they're able to hold their home country culture and their new culture together with both of their hands open and they're not having to dismiss one in order to embrace the other or dismiss the American culture to stay connected to their home country culture but that their families have created the opportunity for it to be okay to be both and mm-hmm. kind of like your sign. Yes. And mm-hmm. that we're constantly moving through. Yes. You are an adopted person and you were loved by the family that created you and the family that is raising you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Cause some days, I want to be adopted too, so that I cannot be biologically related related to some of the crazy people in my family of origin. I would really like to have that as an out. Like <laughs> I am not related to those people. Um, so it's it's but it's it's that piece of being able to hold their culture. So that's one of those indicators of when we know kids are working through the loss of everything that they lose from what their country smelled like, looked like, the texture of the air. It's different. You you come from Africa or you come from Central America to Idaho, air's a little thinner here. Mm -hmm. May never have seen that quite fluffy stuff that comes down and is both hot and cold at the same time. It's very confusing. So (laughs) um, if you've never seen it before, it's like, what is this? This is crazy. I don't know what this stuff is. So it's that they're able to come to terms with all of that. And it's just part of their story. Mm. I think in infant's adoption, I love a good openness story. I love the families who have uh, the first families 
the birth moms, the birth dads, the birth grandparents, aunties, and cousins on speed dial, that it's just additional extended family. It's like you have another set of in-laws. These just happen to be biologically connected to the child we all love. Those are the stories where kids get to say, I'm missing my dad, the one that created me inside my tummy mommy, and I'm just going to be sad for a minute. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm over it. Let's go play. Mm -hmm. But that they can just say that from the time that they're little Mm -hmm. until they're teenagers and are like, so this whole obsession that I have with music. Is that because of how you guys raised me or did I get that from one of my parents? I don't know. Let's call them. And that they can just tap back into those pieces of where did I get my crooked finger? Oh, you know what? Let's call your birth grandma because let's see if that runs on your bio mom or your bio dad side of the family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing. It's just extra people who love your kid. And that's really hard for adoptive families when they haven't walked through the loss of producing a child that is theirs. And that's a culture issue Mm -hmm. because no child is ever yours. Mm. You might be biologically connected. You may be legally responsible, but you don't actually own that kid. Yeah. And in culture, we think we own those kids. And that's part of the things that we need to grieve is both as birth families and adoptive families is neither family owns the child. Mm. And Mm. that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Even when adoption isn't part of your story, you still don't own the kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's big. Lots of people need to hear that message. For sure. For sure. So as we kind of bring this thing to a a close here, I've really enjoyed hearing all of this information. It's been super helpful and fun to listen to with great information. I'm curious, like what is something that makes you excited about where the world is right now from when you started in this career and where things are going? Is there something that you're just like, yes, okay, this is working. What are we excited about? I think what I'm most excited about is as a society, we're not as successful at being able to control the narrative anymore. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So whether it's racial issues, whether it's adoption issues, we can't control the narrative because of social media, because of millennials. Millennials get a really bad rap for like, oh, they're so selfish. But you know what they are is they know how to speak their mind and we should not condemn them because we, as the older generations, weren't allowed to speak our mind at their age. Mm -hmm. That whole idea of you have to wait until you're in your forties or fifties or sixties or eighties for somebody to listen to you. It's like, "Mm, I think the millennials get it right. And so I'm very excited about this generation that is coming up and saying, this is unacceptable behavior. Here's how we can be better. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's good for all of our society. And I think people are doing a better job of looking at, so we behaved badly and now we know better. So we're going to do better. 
Dr. Maya Angelou, one of my favorite quotes, people do as well as they can. And when they know better, they do better. Mm-hmm. And I think we know better now. We're practicing openness across all forms of adoption, not just in infant, but in foster care adoption, in international adoption, there is openness. And that's huge. If you want to make the biggest impact on loss and being able to resolve grief, have openness. Mm. And even if it's not safe for you to be talking to somebody, have openness in your heart. Create space for your child to be able to talk about those big feelings and Mm. the little feelings. And just create a container for that, an emotional container, a physical container, whatever it is that your kid needs. Yes, I love that so much. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I, I love the nuggets that I get. I have no doubt that the listeners are hearing um, things that are relevant for them. Hopefully each of us are able to take a little like, oh, just a little heighten our ability to be better um, with these nuggets that are going to help us individually and certainly then help us do exactly what you just closed on is being that container. It's something that I have been trying to learn for my own kids really intentionally is it's not that I have to fix things for them either and sometimes when they are feeling those big feelings and they know they're safe to say all sorts of stuff at mom's house because I just let them and I'm like oh I hear you oh and then just I don't have to have an answer and then they get to get that you know the resolve in that little moment like several of your examples just it's almost like such an easy process if just everybody knew how to do it and let it be this easy, kind of easy tool to navigate those big, heavy things. Sure. Sure. So great. Thank you so much for taking the time, Sally, to be on today. Um, for any listeners out there, if you have had any questions that come up for you in the scope of adoption, for grief, um, processing through grief or anything, you can message me with a voice message if you're listening on Anchor, or I'm really easy to find all over social media. I'm at Cookie Megan, uh, or you can just email me, meet Megan McCaleb at gmail.com. If you have any questions that you want to ever follow up with one of our interviews on here, Sally, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the work that you do. It is truly making a difference in this world. Thanks, Megan. And thank you for being willing to have the hard conversation. Not everybody is uh, willing to do that. And your work is also making a huge difference. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. If you'd like to stay connected to me in other ways, you can find me on most social media platforms at Megan or at my website, meganmccaleb.com. And remember, you don't have to be a big deal to do big things.